And um, for you who are visiting for the first time, uh, we're glad that you're here. And we hope that you will fill out a little visitor's card. It's in the pew in front of you there. And uh, if not, just use the sermon notes and write your name down in there and, you know, give it to us afterwards. That'd be great. We'd love to get to know you better. And that's one of the key ways that we can do that. Before we get started, I'd like to mention um, about Mildred, uh, Ron and Nancy Ward's mom, uh, Ron's mom, and Mildred Ward um, uh, had surgery uh, this past week and uh, took about a foot of her uh, stomach out, her intestine out, about a foot worth there, right? And uh, she's uh, recovering. Um, It's slow going. But uh, please remember to pray for Mildred. As she, uh, is, it's a tough recovery. And so uh, uh, things went well in the surgery. But if, when, once we find out more regarding her status, we'll give you a, an email or a phone call. Um, and by the way, what we're trying to do is if you do not have Internet, we just figure everyone has Internet. But we recognize that not everyone does. If you don't have Internet... If you'd um, give us a, a note or a phone call during the week and let Rochelle know, and then we'll establish a, a list of phone numbers um, that we can, you know, call and uh, set up a, a, a way of, you know, notifying folks in that way. Um, but the the standard way now is just sending out an email. It's so uh, helpful, easy that way. So, okay. Here we go. We're back in Luke chapter 1. And, um, you know, I recognize that sometimes I just get a little excited and I I think I can fit about two hours worth into a 40-minute or so message. I'm sorry, but I do. I I get excited about um, what God's showing me in His Word and I want to pass that along to you. And I hope that all of us will be excited about how we live our lives here at this time. And how we handle things, how we express ourselves in all. Um, We're going to be talking more about this theme of God's mercy here uh, this morning. And I I know that if I was in Bible times, in, in times where Jesus was walking around the earth, I, I know I'd be tempted to figure that I was a, a righteous one and I wouldn't need His mercy. I, I, was, I, was, I was good. You know, I, I was already good. And the, the things that we're learning in, in our study of God's Word is that we all ought to be thinking like we're all sick and in need of a physician. We need His mercy. So that way, when Jesus walks by, we're, we're crying out, have mercy on me, son of David, rather than, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Right? We need to think of it in terms of that. And having been saved, if you are uh, a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been saved, you have been rescued from the judgment of God, you know that you have His mercy. And you know that you need to keep growing in His mercy keep growing in reliance upon His mercy and His grace. And so, here today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week um, 
regarding Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, I mentioned the song last week was, um, it had at least three verses. And verse 1 was praising God for being a covenant-keeping God. Now, that might sound, you know, however that sounds, it's important that we understand. That's how Zechariah approached this, this song of praise. He was praising God for being a covenant-keeping God. From years, hundreds and thousands of years prior, he had, he had brought about his, his word. He had fulfilled his word. And so Zechariah praises him for that. And then in verses 76 through 78, uh, we see the preparing, the, the verse, uh, the second verse is preparing for the coming Messiah King. And so Zechariah understands that, that the Messiah is coming. And he, he acknowledges that in his song. And then the third verse is where we want to pick it up, where, where we left off last week about the, the purpose of the Messiah, the purpose and the practice of the Messiah. See, Zacharias is not just singing this song, if you were singing it. He's not just singing this song about his own son and boasting in his own son. Remember that? We said that last week. He's boasting in who God is. And he's boasting in the fact that here, here, his son will be the one that prepares the way of the Lord. And then he turns around and praises him and says, you know, here's the, the purpose and the practice of the coming Messiah. So John's calling, he, he's, he's just been born, but he already is, understand, here, here's what his parents understand, that his calling is to be the prophet of the Most High, and that he's the, in, in that, his office is prophet of the Most High, and he will be the, the one who prepares the way of the Lord by way of preaching the good news. Alright? And there we have it. Prophet, preparer, and preacher. That's John, that's what John will be doing. And so here is the hope. I'm sorry, here's the, the message of hope for all mankind in this, in the birth of the Messiah. And in the birth of John the Baptist, he's the one that's preparing the way. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. So this is the proclamation. It's about the proclamation of the good news of salvation. That's John the Baptist calling. Now, pick it up with me in verse 78, where it reads this. Because of the tender mercy of our God. There's our theme. We've been talking about mercy the last two or three Sundays. And here's our theme again. It's because of the tender mercy of our God. What is the, the message of salvation. That's what he said in the prior verse, right? Here's the proclamation of forgiveness of sins. That's what every one of us needs. If you're here this morning and you don't have the assurance of your sins being forgiven, you, you have no hope. You only have hope when you come to faith in Christ. Because then your sins are forgiven. I had, a, I had a guy come to me last night. I was uh, getting pizza at Pizza Barn. And... Um, I, I was standing in line and, and a couple came up to me and the woman was doing this to the husband. Tell him what happened when you were in Oregon. And he said, what? And tell him what happened. Oh, 
I accepted Jesus into my life. And I, yes! <laughs> Slap him. Silly, you forget this. Don't forget this. You can't forget that. Okay, and then I said to him, your sins are forgiven. And I probably said it with that big smile, that Swedish, Norwegian smile. Yeah, that's good. Your sins are forgiven. And now it's the time for starting to grow in the faith. Okay? So, I'm excited about that. And if you're a Christian, you ought to be excited about that. And recognize it's because of what? The tender mercy of our God. Okay? And... Through now, this verse in verse seventy-eight, it's a pivotal verse because it's it's connecting what was already said and it's going to connect with what will be said. Look at what will be said with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. There it is. I, we mentioned that last week a little bit. We're not going to dive into it too much here this morning, but here's the here's the the daylight, the break of day, the sunrise. Here's the day spring shining on a dark world. And it's why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Okay? And that's um, where the, the day spring shall... Look at that verse in verse 78. With which the day spring or the sunrise from on high shall visit us. And when we talked about visit us, we look back to verse 68 where it talked about the visitation of God upon the, those who are in absolute dire straits. They need Someone to come and help them. And here's the visiting of the Messiah. Okay? So Luke tells us that the tender mercy of our God... Luke, in his, his writing it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the tender mercy of our God is the basis of the message. Alright? That John will proclaim about the Messiah. And it's the basis for the Messiah's very coming. Do you get that? You look at that passage and that's what it's telling us. With which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. So His coming is described as the dawning. The, the, as, just as the sun rises in the morning, Jesus is the day spring. And that's fulfilling Malachi verse uh, chapter 4, verse 2, where the prophet refers to the, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shining, Okay? And rising up. He's the rising of light. And thus he says in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the what? I am the light of the world. So he wasn't just talking about a little curly Q light bulb. He was talking about I am the light of the world. I will, ex- I will dispel darkness at my presence. Okay? So, he is mankind's hope. John, the Baptist, will have the the message of hope about preparing the way. But here's the the Messiah who is the hope. He is the day spring. He is the, the sunrise from on high. And so Jesus' mission, his mission now is now stated in verse 79. Look at verse 79. Here's the mission of the Messiah. Verse 79, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's a quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9. Okay, there's great darkness over the land. And 
Here's the rising of, of the, a great light. They will see a great light. And it's talking about the Messiah. Okay. So, the, the, those that sit in darkness. Here's what we, we want to break this down a little bit. Um, so when the Messiah comes, he is the sun rising up. He is the great light. And he is dispelling darkness. And notice what it says here. To shine upon those who sit in darkness. Okay? It's darkness. And in Colossians chapter 2, it's, um, I'm sorry, chapter 1, in Colossians, Paul uses that to say, you were once in the kingdom of darkness. Okay? And everyone, that's their case. And when you sit in darkness, when there's total darkness, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to go anywhere. It's assumed with this phrase, they sit in darkness, it's assumed they can't see due to the darkness they live in, and then also to those who are in the shadow of death. Interesting how those are connected. They're sitting in darkness, and those in the shadow of death. Meaning what? Death is near. Death is forthcoming. And thus there's really no hope. The looming sense of death being so near. This is the description. This is where people are without God, without hope, without Jesus. Okay? That's what we have to remind ourselves of. I know that many of you, you understand this. You get this. But we need to be seeing it more and more through the pages of Scripture. People are in darkness. They can't see the light. And you and I, Christian, if you're a believer, part of what we need to be doing is in a loving, affirming, you know, gentle way, be sharing the gospel with people that are in darkness. And when I go up to a person, it's not like I, I see them in a in some sort of tube that's, a, you know, a darkness tube. <laughs> that's not it. It's spiritual darkness. They might be the nicest person in the world, in Fallon, America, but they still need to hear the what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't need to just hear some um, rounded off version. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. God help us to be a people that hold on tightly to the gospel and, and express it in a loving way. Express it in a truthful way. So, and when people can't see, let's continue on in this study. When people can't see, what's, what's the next thing? Well, they need guidance, right? Look at the verse. Those who, to, he's going to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. People that are in darkness don't know how to carry on. They can't tell how to carry on. Without any light, they're stuck. In our neighborhood, there's, there, there aren't any street lights. So, um, you know, darkness falls and uh, no, no, no house lights on. Hey, it's, it's nice and dark. You can't hardly see. 
So if the car lights go out, then we're in big trouble. We're, you know, really groping in, in the darkness here, wondering how, how do we get, how do we get home, you know? People need guidance. And thus the second part of the description of what the Messiah will do is to guide our feet into the way of peace. And you say, oh, well, that's cool. That's part of the Christmas message. Now I'm hearing you. Cause the, the, you know, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace. To, to men. You know, um, I would joke with, I've said this in, years ago, I'd say it, you know, when my kids were home, they'd ask, what do you want for, what do you want for Christmas, dad? I'd quote that verse. Luke chapter 2. Peace on earth. Peace in this house. (laughs) And see, the big question is with this idea of He will guide our feet into the way of peace. So the big question is this. How do we define the term peace? I gave you my definition of when the kids were all at home. But that's not peace in this context. When you're, listen, when you're studying the Bible, you always need to remember, study what's before and what's after. And the context of this passage is what? It's not tenor, tenor mercy is part of it. The context is here's the gospel message and the Messiah. Here's salvation. So put those two together. What is he going to guide you in? In the way of peace. Which is obviously, because of the context, connected to salvation. There's tender mercy here. There's salvation. With salvation, there's forgiveness of sins. That's all mentioned in the text. So the intended meaning of peace is connected with salvation. And I believe then, and I know most of you do too, the Messiah's purpose was and is to bring peace to mankind on His terms, in, with His definition of peace. Okay? So as we move along in this study, I want you to keep in mind this picture that's being put before us in this passage. Here's the tender mercy of God like the, the day spring on high, okay? And the, for, the message of forgiveness of sins that John the Baptist will be proclaiming, <clears throat> okay? And hold on to that thought, because right now I want to mention this. <clears throat> At one point or another, people who study the Word of God come across a... Th- <clears throat> Excuse me people come across a theological dilemma. And that's this. How does a perf- Listen, how does a perfect God truly show mercy to a rebellious, sinful people? How does He do that without cutting corners? You look at certain people and you think, oh, how could... And, and right or wrong, you, you could say, how in the world could God forgive them? And there are situations that come up in our lives where we, we see this tension with this theological dilemma come up more. How in the world can a just God forgive a rebellious, sinful people? 
to help? And, and, and how does he do that without losing any integrity on his part? I hope you follow that, because that is a real issue. I mean, after all, I mean, some people make God out to be a, 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 a wonderful grandfather, a wise grandfather figure. And he just wants, all he wants to do is just hold his arms around you. That's the, the picture some people paint of God. Now, I like that picture. Don't you? But there's more to the picture than just a, a nice, warm grandpa figure in heaven. And so we have to wrestle with this. And I hope that you will wrestle with it. So to help to try and answer this and to point out what the Bible says, we need to have a, a quick little mini course on Old Testament sacrificial system. Woo! Oh yeah? I think we need the screen down, guys. <clears throat> Old Testament 101. Not really. We're not going to take a lot of time, but I do want to show you some of these things here. How, how did um, the people of Israel carry on as the people of God when there was the problem of sin? And God set that up. God instructed His people in how to go about receiving um, mercy. And here's how it came about, real quickly, in a summary fashion. Once the people were delivered out of Egypt and headed off to the promised land, God instructed them to, first of all, build up a tabernacle for their worship, for their sacrifices, which they were supposed to make. Because of their what? Their sin. Okay? So, there is a drawing of the tabernacle, an artist's rendition of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And all those things surrounding the outside, those are tents. And those tents were, they were, here are the categories of the different tribes around the tabernacle. Okay? So in the tabernacle... There are certain things for the purpose of sacrifice for sin. Now, all this, just keep in mind, all this is a foreshadowing, a foreshadow of what's supposed to happen. This, this happened physically. This actually happened. The people were delivered out of Egypt and they went out and, you know, they started worshiping their God. They said, we, we need to leave Egypt to go and worship our God. And here's, here's how it came about in the big general picture. Okay? But the centerpiece of their worship was the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the, the, uh, another artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was built to exact specs. The guy that built it, you can read about it. We won't turn there, but Exodus uh, chapter 25, you can read about it. Mark down the, the reference if you'd like, and um, you can read about that. 
So this is the Ark of the Covenant. And it, it, it's usually called the Ark of the Covenant. There's other names for it, but that's what we'll go with right now. And it contained three items inside of this box. Okay? A tab, the tablets of the, what? Ten Commandments. Okay? The Law of God. The, the Word of God. There it is. The tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then also a golden urn that held the, um, a sampling of the, the manna that they received as they're going through the wilderness. And then thirdly, Aaron's staff, which happened in the, in the time of rebellion. And God called the guy, the different men to bring forth their staff and whichever staff butted forth, and blossomed forth and brought forth almonds or what I think it was almonds, that that was the true leader, the chosen leader of the priesthood. And that was Aaron's staff, Aaron's rod, they call it. Those things were inside the, the Ark of the Covenant. Another reference I hope you'll mark down is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. Now, obviously, Hebrews, there, there are many references in Hebrews because that's what Hebrews is about, the, the priesthood, okay? And how Christ is the, the high priest. The ark also had the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat is the lid on that container, on that box. That's the mercy seat. And the cherubim there have the, their wings covering themselves and their backside, Okay? And there's the aspect of uh, what's the purpose of the mercy seat? And the purpose of the mercy seat was, again, here's the like the centerpiece of their worship. And um, continually, continually, the priests carried out their responsibilities year after year. And the mercy seat was the very place where sins were atoned for. Now, it, it might be that, you, you know... you. You're not um, connecting the big with the big picture in this. But the people of Israel would bring animals after animals, year after year, of sacrifices. And so people nowadays study the Old Testament and they say, oh, it's a terribly bloody religion. Judaism. Okay? But these sacrifices... Never found, never found full satisfaction with God. It's always temporary. That's why the priests kept coming back time after time, year after year, to offer sacrifices of blood animals, blood, uh, uh, sacrifices of, uh, of animals, uh, in their, it was their blood that was shed and sprinkled on that mercy seat. And for a time then, God would say, okay, my wrath is now withheld. Remember that. My wrath is now withheld. And so for hundreds of years, the Israelites followed the meticulous details of hoping that the blood of these animals would be the temporary answer to God's wrath. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly... The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So, 
And if not, if they just didn't do this procedure, if not, well, then they were, they're gonna face God's wrath for their sins. And God would have been just and right to punish them for their sins. Just like He did when He looked upon the civilization and said, you know, I regret making this, this whole thing. And he, and then brought about the flood. But in the middle of that, he said, but Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? So, that gives us a portion of why we need God's mercy and how they, the people of Israel, went about dealing with their sin. Now, along with that, getting back to our dilemma, this dilemma of how does a, a just and right God deal with sinful people. Um, in the book of Psalms, you'll find um, there's many, many petitions that the psalmist offers up as petitions for God's mercy. And also, he offers up examples of how God is both right and merciful. And I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And we're looking at verse 14. Now, again, this is the, the, the part of the dilemma of, of here's a, a perfect God with a sinful people and how, how does it come together? 80, Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the what? The foundation of thy throne. Here's God in His rule and reign. Here's His throne. And what's the foundation? Righteousness and justice. Look at the very next phrase. What does it say? Loving kindness or mercy and truth go before thee. Right? Turn back a couple of pages to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. Psalm 85 verse 10. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Look at this. Righteousness and what? Peace have kissed each other. Okay, there's a connection, a union in it. And here's how that dilemma is answered. It's in, here's God's character. Here's, here's His attributes. Okay. Now, along with those references, we're not going to look these up, but would you write these down? I encourage you to write them down. Psalm chapter 50 deals with God is judge. <laughs> Psalm chapter 50. Also, Psalm chapter 51. Okay? There's the cry for mercy. Psalm 51. If you've not read that lately, I encourage you, read that, uh, read that reference in uh, that chapter, Psalm 51. There's also a, um, a reference in Nahum. The old, uh, the minor prophet Nahum, in chapter one, uh, where it talks about God is is filled with fury about man's sin, and then it talks about how God, the same God, is the one who is the re- the place of refuge. And and here's our strength. Okay, so now we're taking a jump here again. Hang with me. 
Because here, here now we jump to the New Testament. The Gospels have numerous times where, I've mentioned already, uh, people cry out for the mercy of God. They cry out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus gives an illustration here in Luke chapter 18. Turn there quickly. Luke chapter 18. And this is an illustration of this uh, understanding of mercy. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. He told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer, a publican. The, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I, that I get. That was what we have recorded as his prayer. Verse 13, But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. You have another word there? Or a, a note in, your, in the column of your Bible? It, it ought to say, God, be my mercy seat. God, be my propitiation. Okay? That's what he's saying. And he doesn't just, it's not just meant to be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but rather, the sinner. And, I need to line up and say that same thing and you need to line up and say that same thing about yourself and your condition before God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So, now, there's many other passages that we could put on here and and add in, but that's enough for now. And what I want to do is take you through, here's what Jesus did in His coming. Okay? With this in mind, with this, with this picture in mind of the Old Testament sacrificial system, Jesus, first and foremost, according to the book of Hebrews, served as the high priest. He himself served as the high priest to sacrifice the sacrifice that was necessary. So he served as the high priest. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, um, chapter 7, about he's of the order of Melchizedek. Meaning that it goes on and on, how long? Forever. He's the high priest forever. And he's, he's selected as that. He's the, he's the chosen one in that regard. He's holy and consecrated to the Lord, set apart for that service as high priest. Not anyone could serve as high priest. And here, here's the, the fulfillment of it is Jesus is the high priest. And at the same time he's high priest, he served as the what? The very sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, as John the Baptist would later on be crying out, Behold, this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. And by the way, 
a quick rabbit trail on that. We're supposed to be talking about Christmas. My friend, we are talking about the reason for Christmas. He came and he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And in going to the cross, you remember what he had to go through? That cat of nine tails that was used to whip him on his back. They basically ripped open his back in punishment. And we can't hardly fathom that. And then on top of that, they nail him to the cross with those spikes and then plop him up on the, on the, in the hole and drop it down and it shakes his body. And now on top of that, every breath he takes to try and continue on breathing is ripping his back even more. Why? Because of the wood on the back. And the design of the crucifixion was the worst form of execution mankind has come up with. Because it was slow. It was suffocating. And every time he tried to get a breath, he had to use his legs. And every time he was pushing his back against that wooden cross, ripping it open and digging it in even more. And we get all upset about that. Because that is physically terrible. The worst hasn't even been mentioned. Because the worst is yet to come where the wrath of God fell upon Jesus at the cross. That's the worst. And that's where he cried out, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was the sin bearer. And he was slain. His blood was shed. And first Peter, Peter says, the just, the just one, Jesus, for the unjust, you and me. And so, he served as the high priest, he served as a sacrifice, and he serves as the, the very mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled, where the wrath of God is now satisfied. And previously, it was never truly, perfectly satisfied, but now with the death of the Lamb, the perfect spotless Lamb of God at the cross, now the wrath of God is satisfied. Because here's a perfect sacrifice for your sins. Thus, 1 John 4, verse 10. It started off, our, our December memory verse. In this is what? Love. Here is love. Here is His goodness. Here is His mercy. Not that we love God first. No, our condition was one of, we're, we're helpless. In fact, we're dead in our sins. But that He loved us and sent His Son, there's Christmas, to be the mercy seat, to be the propitiation for our sins. It's here at the mercy seat we find God's mercy. 
It's here where we see Jesus Christ taking our punishment. It's here that we find the way of peace with God. He, Ephesians 2.14 says, He Himself is our peace. He has made us one. He's broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. You remember what he, uh, uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ, we can also have the, the peace of God in our daily lives. He wants us to draw near. This recognition right before us, this time of communion, is to have us draw near Him on a continual basis. And also by abiding in Him, we can continue in the path of peace. A path which leads on to a joy unspeakable. This is what Christmas is really about. Here's the... Here's the what's underneath it all. Here's what's behind the scenes of the the manger scene. It's that He came out of tender mercy to deliver mercy to us. In the person of the Lord Jesus. So that He could come and accomplish His perfect work. And remember what else He cried out at the cross? It is finished. And by the way, in the tabernacle, let me go back here. In that tabernacle, you know what was missing in the tabernacle? A chair. You know why? The priest's work was never done. No chair. Interesting little feature. And so when Christ then died, was buried, and rose again, then later on he was ascended into heaven where he did what? Sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is cool. Because now, the high priest sat down. Because the work is done. The work for your salvation has been completed. If you've not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you need to do is respond by faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith that He is your mercy seat all of this is so that you and I might have a shelter in the time of storm there's a a hymn written by a man by the name of Hugh Stoll I've never heard it but it was originally called peace at the mercy seat but then they switched it to from every storm wind that blows I've never heard that hymn before but here are the words Uh, Two verses of it. From every storm wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat. Tis found beneath the mercy seat. There is a place where Jesus sheds the oil of gladness on our heads. A place then all besides more sweet. It is the blood-bought Mercy seat. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have peace with God? If you don't, I I would love to talk to you.
I know uh, Chris was up here. He, he'd love to talk with you. One, one of our elders or deacons, you know, we want to be of help to point you to an eternity that can't be beat because of what Jesus accomplished perfectly at the cross. Let's pray together and consider these things and, and prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray. Lord, speak to our hearts in this time. Help us to be drawing near and to receive these elements in a way that shows that we're on track with you and and submitting to you. Lord, not a one of us is perfect. But in Christ Jesus, we, we have your righteousness, your perfect righteousness. And my account is credited with Christ's righteousness because of what he's done. And thank you for the gift of faith to believe. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you want to do in our hearts right now as we remember Jesus and his suffering and his bleeding and his death. Guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.